Welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. I'm your host, Parker Setacase, and this is a podcast where we explore all the deepest questions in philosophy, theology, nature, and life with experts in those fields. I really love thinking about cool stuff, and you're invited to come think with me. Today's episode, another awesome one, another special one. There's a couple guys when you first start getting into philosophy or religion type stuff and their names pop up all over the place. You just keep seeing them over and over and over and over. And you think, man, it'd be kind of cool to talk with them. Well, uh, I have one with me, another one with me today. I have with me Dr. Charles Tolliver. A lot of you are going to think it's Talia Farrow or something like that, um, but it's pronounced Tolliver. That's how he pronounced it. Um, it's another guy like like Stuart Gatz where you just see his name everywhere. And uh, I'm really, really excited to get in on substance dualism and a little bit of his, his own story and philosophy as well. Before we do, I want to thank everyone over on Patreon for making this podcast happen. Um, really appreciate you guys. If this is your favorite podcast, if it's top five, top ten, please consider becoming a Patreon patron and supporting this podcast. You can find the link in the description. And there's all sorts of different levels of support that you can join at. Please, please do so. I wanted to say something about like Netflix and how, uh, you know, Netflix or Disney Plus, they give you like an hour a week and I give you like two and whatever. Don't, I'm not going to try and guilt anyone. But if you like this podcast, please consider uh, consider becoming a patron. All right. Um, without further ado, let's bring uh, Dr. Tolliver in and get going on substance dualism. Dr. Tolliver, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. And incidentally, when we're done, I'm going to become a patron. <laughs> Fantastic. I love that, man. That's so good. Well, um, I-, I wanted to talk about your story. Uh, in How you- how'd you get into philosophy in the first place, I guess? Ah, good question. I got into it really as a, as a boy, partly because I grew up in a fairly um, dysfunctional family in some respects. I had two older brothers that were constantly ridiculing me. Hmm about almost everything. Um, and some of it was quite substantial. The Vietnam War was happening. I was born in 52. I have older brothers. One of them actually went to Vietnam. And I was looking for an area of life where people could argue with each other without ridicule. Hmm. I came across a book, uh, a classic, actually, in the 50s, 60s, and in the 70s, Will Durant, called The Story of Philosophy. Oh, yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure I, can, I recommend it now because it's <laughs> so flawed. Yeah. However, it made the history of ideas exciting. Mm-hmm. And it also it put these thinkers together, Aristotle and Plato, Anna, Nietzsche, and so on. And they said about presenting arguments with each other where it wasn't bathed in ridicule. It, they actually to different degrees, respected each other. And that's kind of what I was looking for, a, a refuge of where you could, um, you know, because my my home was um, intense. Like you'd say, good morning. So you go, ooh, good morning. <laughs> that's fantastic. That's so great. Well, um, I, I forgot to mention, but you you are a professor emeritus at St. Olaf, and, um, and you just retired from teaching coursework, right? And, and we were joking that... Uh, 
some, something like 40 years. You, you, you definitely put in your time there, which is, uh, which is so fantastic. And it's, it's shown up in, in oh, so many books that I have in here where I see your name. So I'm really uh, appreciative to you for that. I'm glad that you got in, especially to the type of work that you do on substance dualism and philosophy of mind type stuff. I was really excited the other day. I was looking up uh, Roderick Chisholm um, because one of my professors, uh, Brandon Rickabaugh, always recommends him. Always, you know, person and object is like the book that he gives everyone. And I looked up uh, Chisholm and I saw how many students he had. And I was like, that's crazy. And then I saw your name as one of the prominent philosophers that he taught. And um, so I wanted to just ask you, like, how did you get in with uh, Chisholm? Did you what what made you want to study with him, I guess? Well, he was the leading expert and, and probably still is looking back on the 20th century. He died in 99 mm-hmm. um, of intentionality and believing in. He was a Platonist also. And I was coming from Harvard, uh, actually Harvard Divinity School, but I was taking courses in the yard with Israel Scheffler. And, and I was doing some work with Putnam and others. And it was a very nominalist very scientifically oriented. And Chisholm was much more capacious. And I'll tell you something personal that might be revealing. Chisholm was, in my view, in my relationship, very impersonal. Hmm. It would always be, uh, never Charles. It was always, hello, Tolliver. And I would sometimes remind him of who I was. He goes, hi, Professor Chisholm, it's Tolliver. I know who you are. And... um, (laughs) The thing was, though, he was always at a distance until my dissertation, and I was developing it. I had an argument, an objection, and he just stepped in and answered the objection for me. It was from Ernie Soso, hmm. a very gifted philosopher. And I, so I, and I passed, but I was very moved by him stepping in and defending me because it, hmm. it was kind of paternal. I was, did not expect it. Yeah. And I went home, and I actually just driving from, from Providence, from Brown University home, and I was just weeping. Hmm. Uh, so fast forward about 15 years from there, and Chisholm was doing the Library of Living Philosophers, and he was responding to his critics. Yeah. However, he went blind and um, was probably feeble mentally or impaired, sure. and so... He wasn't able to finish all the replies. So I contacted the journal and I asked, well, I'm a student of Chisholm's. Can I do a review in which I answer the objections that he didn't get to? Yeah. And they said, yes. And I got it to him about four months before he died. It was actually on his birthday. And he wrote, I got a sweet note back. It was, who knows whether he actually read it. It may have been by, by his wife, but he said, um, it was written, uh, thank you, it was a great birthday present, and I hope that one day you have a student who will give you as much joy as you have given me. Wow. And, again, whether or not it was completely accurate, but it was still from my dissertation where he defended me. Yeah. It was kind of a sweet note where I was able, just before he died, to kind of do it in print to defend him. Yeah, that's so awesome. That's that's that that student uh, teacher relationship that I think there's there's like a, a code of ethics and maybe maybe it's not always talked about but you you ought to defend your your teachers you know and it's a really awesome thing when you can do that I, I just love thinking about the legacy and, and how you fit in that and how you 
you helped him out. It's just so cool. I, I'm I'm trying not to uh, get emotional on it, but that's it's really that's a really great story. Thanks so much for sharing that. It's, it's really cool. Um, so you said he was he was one of the leaders in intentionality. I've heard some other uh, philosophers tell me that you know maybe he was he was the best philosopher of that era, but because his views were um, not as like sexy or whatever, he wasn't talking about possible worlds in the way that Lewis was or something. That he didn't get as much attention. Obviously, he's got a lot of attention, but that people didn't recognize him uh, like they do Lewis. Why? Why were you interested in intentionality in the first place? Um, to address the first point, though, I will say that um, popularity in philosophy is often it, it's like style in uh-huh. fashion, and it, it's amazing how say. Big, big names like Richard Rorting. After he died, I don't hear much about him. I don't right. hear many articles. And yet Cambridge University Press spent a fortune. Another philosopher making a slight comeback is Walter Kaufman. Hmm. During his lifetime, he was like a god. And, you know, just amazing. So there, things go back and forth. And I would say to one more point. Yeah. The readers might be, viewers might be interested, but... I think the more weird your view, <laughs> uh, the more you're going to get attention. So David Lewis, Possible World. I mean, yeah. to say the biggest objection he gets is the incredulous stare. Uh-huh. You know, like there's right now a possible world where Parker has a counterpart who's winning Wimbledon. You yeah. know, and he's, do you actually believe that? And he goes, yes. And it's like, Wow. Or Galen Strawson, I hesitate to do it, but you know, his view originally was we human beings only last for four minutes. Mm-hmm. And he eventually changed it to we last for, you know, whatever. But it was like the more strange your view, the more. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, it seems to me a perennial question in philosophy, going back to Plato, is is this whole thing, the cosmos both you and I, and whether it's in Athens or Alpha Centauri's, is it at base to be explained in terms of purposiveness? Mm-hmm. As a fundamental rock bottom precept, like the reason why we're together is because I've got beliefs and desires and intentions, and that's why we're interacting. Yeah. Or does it ultimately need to be explained without recourse to beliefs and desires, but just to say, to use the modern-ish term from the 1700s, is it just matter in motion? Right. And that's what um, at least a couple of ancient Greeks thought, and that's what Thomas Hobbes thought. Hmm. There was no role, as Ralph Cover said, who was contemporary of Hobbes, he goes, where's consciousness? And actually, he was probably the first philosopher to use the word consciousness. Huh. Because he, he says, let's look at his view of thinking, and all we have is matter, we have motion, but we don't really have the thought two plus two equals four. It's more or less like a calculating machine, and it comes up four, but it's not because the calculating machine is actually thinking. Right. You know, it's a computational device, and we have to wait till Pascal and Leibniz before we get computers, but pretty you know, Hobbes was 1600s. Computers started only 100 years later. Right. And um, so I've always been of the mind that there's something 
uh, well, I'll just go, I'll put it two ways, evident that the most evident thing I know is that I'm, I believe I'm with you, yeah. <laughs> Parker, yeah. your viewers, and then I'm trying to express myself. I have beliefs and desires. I have a location in the world. And that's um, subjectively anchored mm-hmm. as being myself. And what I worry about is some of the professors I had just before meeting Chisholm, and Quine was not one of my professors. I did know him. I spent some time with him. But he was an outright behaviorist. Yeah, right. Good friends of B.F. Skinner. And they did not believe in beliefs and desires that at the end of the day, and I and I actually drove him from Providence to um, Boston to Providence and back to Harvard. And um, I knew he had to rely on intentionality. He was telling me about how to pronounce my name. <laughs> I, um, we went to a Chinese restaurant and I almost ran over somebody and he turned to me and he says, I don't like killing people. <laughs> I know Quine had emotions and beliefs and desires, but really at, at the final canvas or the final like inventory of what exists, uh, he didn't have that as mm-hmm. part of what there is. Yeah. And um, I felt I, I would prefer to study under Chisholm at Brown than Quine at Harvard. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. We're just a just a, a random question here. Did, was was Donald Davidson around? Like, did did you ever interact with him at all? I have interacted with him, never as a um, possible um, graduate student or colleague. But one of the things that is interesting among many with Davidson is I hate to use the cliche of have your cake and eat it too. Sure. But, but he saw it. He realized the problem with pure radical materialism is that, I mean, this can't be true. I mean, he went to Harvard as an undergraduate to study actually biblical studies and um, the Iliad. And so you know, that's not B.F. Skinner. <laughs> right. He developed what he called anomalous monism. Right. And so what he allowed was that on the surface, the reason why I'm going to this sentence is because I finished the previous sentence and it had these logical connections. Mm-hmm. But actually, what's really happening is that each sentence, like the word each sentence, is causally supported by a non-mental uh, component, mm-hmm. which causes another non-mental component, which causes another. And so it's anomalous in the sense that the mental isn't actually causing all these things on their own. It's all being done sub rosa or under the surface. Mm-hmm. And this is endemic of David Papineau and other naturalists. And the big, big question that Stu gets and I ask is, um, can you really get agency if you want the cause of closure of the physical world? Right. Yeah, that's uh, 
I, I really like Davidson for his like triangulation argument and some of the, the radical interpretation stuff. I, I really enjoy that. I'm trying to think through if there's implications for the Trinity, you know, all that fun stuff. Oh, but, yeah, it's fun. I, maybe I could send you something uh, if you if you have some time. You're, you're retired now, so maybe you can look at random papers by uh, podcasters. <laughs> but um, uh, you're emeritus, I should say. So with the nominalist monism, that's one I just never got where I, I understood, like you said, that he sees something wrong with um, – with like identity theory or something like that. Like if, if, if it's just the physical, then maybe we don't have mental causation and that's a problem. And he's talking about mental events and such. Um, but I don't see how we can escape like epiphenomenalism. It is, is anomalous monism. Does that commit you to an epiphenomenalism where your, your mental causation isn't like efficacious or something? I, I believe that's true. And one name that you could put in for a Google search is Fred, <laughs> spelt the usual way, and Stoutland. Okay. Stout, like Guinness Stout, and then Land. And is Davidson an epiphenomenalist? Ah. And, and Fred Stoutland was, um, he, he died maybe seven years ago, but he was a non-theist and very profoundly Wittgensteinian. And, and he adopted something similar to Davidson, and actually, very the very end of his life, he was very disquieted about his own solution. But he claimed that, no, Davidson is just left with epiphenomenalism. And then what um, Stoutland did is, is he adopted, and actually Getz has something kind of similar. Hmm. He adopted what he called a non-causal theory of agency. Yeah, He thought the reason why you are talking is because we have certain purposes and intentionality and so on. Now, that according to Stalin, according to Wittgenstein, that's a very different kettle of fish. That's a different language game yeah. than the language of physics, chemistry, and biology. Okay. However, it seems to me that's, that's almost worse. That, that's, a, that's a radical dualism yeah. where, you know, you've got this, as we're psychosocial space, in which you have all this intentional stuff going on, but there's no direct um, way in which this is registered in the physical world. Right. Whereas most of us who are um, dualists, or, or I would say common sense um, persons about agency, yeah, we believe that you know when I pick up this pen, I decided to do so, and of course there are all sorts of neurological co- correlates and. Um, central state nervous system is excited as cerebellum is moving away. Mm-hmm. But most of us believe that on some level, it wasn't just the electrochemical impulses. It was actually my belief that um, I should pick up this pen in order to write you a letter. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that is, that is so fascinating. Um, you've, you've said like in this, uh, the, the chapter that we're going to be discussing is from the uh, the Routledge Handbook to uh, the sorry the Blackwell Companion to Substance Dualism. I always get Blackwell and and Routledge uh, confused there. Um, and it's uh, it's just simply Substance Dualism: A Defense. And in there, you say um, you say mental causation. Uh, we're, we have a better understanding of our mental of mental causation than we do of physical causation. And that's we've been we've been touching on that a little bit, but but through like intentionality, through our beliefs, through our actions, because when I pick up this pen, 
I think it's for the reason that I wanted to demonstrate me picking up a pen. And I'm more aware of that than like, I don't know, C-fibers firing. Usually we say C-fibers for pain, but whatever fibers are firing in our head. Um, is that is that doing a lot of work for you there? Like the, the direct awareness of, of our mental causation? Is that why we understand the mental more than we understand the physical? I think it is. I mean, I think it's an evident fact of our experience. To use a fancy word, we could say it's a phenomenal, it's phenomenological, that is, yeah. phenomena. To be even more pretentious, the uh, of an expression, expresse de conscience, it's a, it's a cap, you capture it in your consciousness. Yeah, that's nice. Um, but I would say, putting it more aggressively, that and this was something that Raymond Tallis does in a recent book called Freedom. And David Papineau, in the Times Literary Supplement, claims this is weird. He did this three weeks ago anyway. Okay. Tallis, um, not following me, because this goes way back to Plato, actually, but you can find it in Who's Thrill and stuff. And they claim that science is built on first-person certainty, awareness, experience, the exercise of reason, mm-hmm. the ability to use reason to enter into disputes, and the like. And without uh, self-trust in your own subjective experience, there would be no third-person point of view. Yeah. Uh, there wouldn't be a second-person point of view either. That People are making a big deal of that for the oh, past okay. years now. But, but there certainly wouldn't be... A third-person point of view, and Daniel Denon will say, um, my starting point is the third-person point of view of science. Yeah. Now, my worry is how can you get to a third-person point of view without a first-person point of view? Right. And so if somebody says, well, I know about C-fibers, I know about electromagnetism, and I know about photosynthesis, what do I know about the mental? Well, take those claims um, to know about electromagnetism, you have to have the idea or the thought of electromagnetism. You have to know what you're talking about. You have to know its scope. Where we, how does that fit in with um, atomic theory or kinetic energy or whatever? All those are thoughts. Yeah. And to say that, oh, I understand why I'm picking up the pen because of you know, this uh, electronic impulse. Well, you don't know even how to use the word electronic impulse, unless you understand the idea of electronic impulse mm-hmm. and the idea that you can trust your reasoning about it. Yeah. So I, I'm I'm going to try not to mention Dennett again, but in his <laughs> last book on um, from bacteria, bacteria to Bach, is that Bach? Yeah. yeah. He he says, look, our mental life is like the screen in our computer, and of course we know that. When you push delete, it deletes and so on. But you have no idea what's really going on. Mm-hmm. As a, that's that's the, the you know center of it all. Mm-hmm. And my, my view is no, you have no idea about what's really going on unless you have some idea of the mental and confidence. For example, to be really banal, uh, you have to know if there's something going on then there's something going on. Mm-hmm. If, if there's photosynthesis, then it's false that there is no photosynthesis. 
Like you have to know that with certainty. Yeah. And it's not just like a computer screen. Yeah, in a computer screen, you may not know exactly how digitally and computationally pressing delete actually deletes this. But yeah. without a concept, having a concept of delete and motion and concept of a manual or just following icons, you would be completely at bay. Yeah. I, I, I love this argument. I, I think it's fantastic. Um, uh, one of my friends, philosopher uh, Jim Slagle, has done uh, some work on this in, in his book, The Epistemological Skyhook. And it's 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 kind of a transcendentally type argument where it's saying, you know, that like Dennett's whole reasoning, he uses skyhook because D- Dennett says we want we want to build cranes from the material up. We don't want skyhooks coming out of nowhere. And so so Slagle just goes, fine, I'm going to take that word and say we do need a skyhook. But it's it's like you have to presuppose folk psychology in order to argue against folk psychology. What, what do you make of that, Dr. Tolliver? Um. I make of it that I've gone again a copy of your friend's book. Yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> um, but I would say just the word folk psychology, or if or if we go manifest image versus sure. scientific, or Laban, Labensvelt, or if we want to stick with uh, Husserl or something, yeah. All of these terms is that uh, they can belie the fundamental phenomenology that's in play here. Mm-hmm. And that is that um, even to think uh, I'm at a conference right now presenting a paper requires enormous confidence that if you're at a conference, you actually are at a conference. Mm-hmm. The basic logic of identity and non-contradiction, unless those hold, even saying, if materialism is true, materialism is true. Well, yeah. how do you know that? Unless you have confidence in your mental life. Right. So the only reason why I might resist folk psychology, because as Churchlands did, they say, well, why should we folk trust folk psychology any more than folk astronomy? Like, um, yeah, the sun is a god. Well, we can go in terms of um, degrees. And we can think of, um, you know, could it be false that somebody, that there's no pain, that nobody has ever felt pain? Hmm. The implausibility of that is phenomenal. And I would say you, calling it folk is, is kind of like um, taking something that stands a shot at being reasonable, at least in my view, I just head into philosophy of religion a little bit, of believing theism to be a reasonable hypothesis. Say, oh, is that kind of like believing in a magic teapot to use? <laughs> Russell. Russell's, yeah. And um, what's her name? Samuel Blackman. Hmm. You know, who, who they do, both do appalling jobs. <laughs> and to think that Russell won a Nobel Prize for Literature, and some of his stuff is wild. Yeah. But in any case, I'd say no, and here are some, like, five reasons why that's... It, I mean, and you that kind of ridicule can take place over anything. Someone says, I'm a utilitarian. Oh, is that kind of like be- believing in fairies? Hmm. Yeah, well, maybe. But I would say... Um, phone is ringing, but I'm going to yeah, let... no worries. Oh. All right. <laughs> um, 
is that the um, science could not occur, especially we'll just take, take modern science of Galileo, Copernicus, uh-huh. and Newton. It couldn't occur unless they trusted the mind. Yeah. They famously bracketed the mind. So they were seeking to describe the world, we'll call it the, the physical and material world, even though I think that's not a clear concept. Right. They said, let's bracket you know, desires and beliefs and so on. So Newton comes up with his laws of motion. But you can bet Newton did not believe that all motion could be described by those laws. Right. Like when um, Chris and Pat fall in love at Cambridge in the quad and they run to each other, Is did Newton actually think, oh, I can explain that in terms of the laws of motion? No. Um, he just thought, for the purposes of doing modern science, we can lay this aside. Yeah. And then what's happened is that, and I like to put this up with Robert Louis Stevenson's fairy tale, but what's happened in, well, since maybe um, Baron von Holbach or something, mm-hmm. then comes about this idea like, wow, we're doing such a great job. Maybe we can do without the mind. And that kind of is like, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson has a um, short story in which a person has a shadow and the shadow eventually comes to life and kills the person creating the shadow. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> That's kind of what's happening is, is you can't have science without intentionality and reasons mm-hmm. and observation and experimentation. Yeah. yeah. Sellers might say, ah, oh, right, yeah, of course, you can't have the scientific image without the manifest image. Mm-hmm. We go, well, then, uh, let's just change the words manifest image. Let's use the word what's evident to you experientially. Uh-huh. And let's take scientific image to mean what you come up with when you do science. Hmm. Things shift. And I think people get a lot of power over masking over um, problems through vocabulary. Denon, again, oh, God, here I go. (laughs) He accuses, um, quote, liberal naturalists. Mm -hmm. Whoever ever I was going to become a naturalist would be a liberal naturalist. Yeah, right. They are not crazy. They don't deny consciousness or beliefs and desires and so on. So say it all exists, all this exists. Mm -hmm. Ethics, yes. Logic, yes. And I say, oh, boy, this is much more reasonable. But then Denik goes, oh, you're presupposing the Cartesian theater. Yep. And they go like, oh, oh, my God, oh, my God. Not the oh, Cartesian theater. <laughs> oh, my God. So we're positing a homunculi behind the brain, seeing out. Oh, no, that can't be true. Right. Well, you know, and, and Dennis goes, oh, look in the brain. I don't see anybody there. Yeah, it's little naturalists are going to go, whoa, you're right. And so what I love about the liberal naturalists is there's a kind of anxiety, hmm. some of them, about how liberal can you go yeah. without becoming at least so much more open to theism. Fiona Hel- Ellis has done a lot on this. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, that's great. It's it's like uh, if only someone named uh, Leibniz came up with a, a giant mill uh, scenario hundreds of years you know prior to this, we could have figured this all out. Um, yeah. So so brilliant uh, argument, by the way. Yeah, I, I love it. I um again, uh, I keep mentioning uh, Brandon Rickabaugh, but he he's uh, developed this in his dissertation, uh, in a phenomenal unity of phenomenal consciousness argument against naturalism and um, even like uh, panpsychism and stuff. So that's a, a, another really good one. That's recent work that you know is is picking up on a lot of the work that guys like you have have been doing for so long, holding down the fort. Um, so again, man, we're, we're super appreciative of you. I, I love I love. Uh, I love using philosophy of mind type stuff and substance dualism to kind of target science because science is kind of the, the sacred calf today. If you can say, look, we need the mind for science, then you get some of that uh, uneasiness that you were talking about. If you, you know, pick up one of Husserl's arguments and you say, look, we need the logical connections between facts. We, we, we can't just have facts, scientific facts without the logical connections. Now we got intentionality back. We got minds. We got logic. Um, Another another person who's who's been doing some work on this, Philip Goff, uh, and he he wrote a popular version of his dissertation called I think it's Galileo's Error, and he says the, similar to what you were saying earlier that Galileo uh, he bracketed off consciousness so that he could get at you know physical causation, but he didn't think we don't have consciousness, and then his his uh, the people who came after him said, look, we don't need consciousness, we can explain the whole world without it from the third person. But then you come along and, and, and folks like in, in this stream, which I love, and say, look, we, we still have the first person here the whole time. You don't get the third without the first. And something you know, C.S. Lewis wrote in the uh, Meditation in the Tool Shed, where he's describing um, brain uh, neuropsychologists and, and uh, all, uh, I don't know, people who – brain scientists <laughs> and uh, – they're looking at the brain and they're saying, look, here, this, if I move this and stimulate this, then he's going to move his hand. And so there it is, third person all the way back. But they forget that they're using their first person perspective and their beliefs in order to do that. So I love it. It's, it's one of my favorite things to talk about. Yeah, Philip Groff um, and also that unity of phenomenal consciousness. You give me some brilliant references. And I, I just want to compliment you, Parker, and oh. for those that are reading listening, um, that I think the way to do philosophy is um, to count, to counter Wittgenstein, and then I'll compliment Wittgenstein. Okay. Is don't work with an unhealthy limitation of examples. Hmm. And I think the more you can cast aside, you know, the usual suspect, you know, think broadly and including you know just radically you know skeptically and think about all you know just the more you can do to connect as a community of thinkers the better and the less likely it'll be you'll just wind up talking to yourself yeah that this philosophy is best done according to plato is um in dialogue i mean plato said in the surface dialogue thinking is dialogue within the soul yeah and I think the more that we can gain with one another through dialogue the richer our conversation and also the more challenge that we can get to developing eccentric and um ways that need to be challenged so 
what you're doing in these podcasts is just spectacular. And you've, you've given me um, a, a great, my money's worth. Uh, <laughs> this is fantastic. Well, I mean, uh, we're not we're not even done yet, but I've got all these notes here that I've taken from you. So um, I'm definitely uh, the one who is who is benefiting more on this end. Um, well, Dr. Tolliver, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, substance dualism, uh, a little bit more about substance dualism. You, you go over you go over the history of the word, and I take it that you don't really like the word that much. Um, and I you've written this you said you know you'd rather you'd rather say monism is false and argue for some type of pluralism and i and i really like that um but we're we're left with dualism it's kind of our inheritance uh substance dualism so can you talk about zoroastrianism and and where this word came from yeah thanks for picking up on that yeah the word dualism certainly wasn't used by Descartes, Plato, Augustine, all the so-called famous, you know, dualists uh, historically, or the Cambridge Platonists. And, um, you know, Zoroastrianism posits these two absolutely powerful opposing forces, um, Mazda and the other force, yeah, I'm pretty sure it is Mazda because I think the the person who invented the Mazda, the car, was a, Zoro- uh-huh. a Zoroastrian. No way, that makes yeah, sense. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things is, um, it, by the way, if you study this stuff, the most amazing, like even Tetley T has a kind of weird uh, background. I think huh. Zoroastrianism too. Wow. There are, by the way, I think as many as. Possibly thirty thousand Zoroastrians still around. Okay, well we have we have the Kia Soul, so there's some substance dualism out. You know, the, the car, the Kia Soul. We we have, we've got some influence still ourselves, <laughs> which is nice. But I would say, um, what's happened in probably well, certainly in the twentieth century, dualism became like um, a term of disapprobation. Mm-hmm. And so to call somebody a dualist was basically to say that they're obfuscating, that they oppose science, et cetera, et cetera. Theologians often use the word to um, capture the idea that the body is not just secondary to the mind, but uh, as um, the body is the, the source of uh, sin and disordinate desires and so on versus the mind isn't. And so, so dualism has become enmeshed with all these things. And um, what's amusing is that some of the most virulent people that attack dualism really applaud um, two things. One is uh, feminism and the other is Native American or um basically Aboriginal uh, anthropology. Mm-hmm. And actually, feminism is radically committed to opposing eliminativism. Wow. I mean, feminists that I read are all about desire and beliefs and about um, oppression, sublimation, sure. and, itself and so on. None of this has any place in an eliminativist or behaviorist view of things. Mm. And Likewise, whether it's Shintos or it's uh, African Aboriginal religions or it's um, deep in Brazil with, you know, pre or mixed with Roman Catholicism. Yeah, Santeria. You've got 
ancestral spirits. Now you've and you, by the way, in China you've got tons of ghosts and they're still around. Mm-hmm. Uh, you go below the surface and you you find a lot of stuff. And even you know Japan is both secular, but Shinto shrines are used a lot. Right. And this is where people are. They may not believe it or not, but they're actually practicing a kind of uh, placatory acts or acts of veneration in which they're um, addressing ancestors. Now, those ancestors are tethered to the earth and relations and maybe even trees and forests, uh, riverbeds and so on. But they're not the very same thing as the body that that, that was buried of their uh, parent. Right. Uh, that is, there's a belief that there's more. And that's been the pro- prevalent view, you know, throughout history, east, west, north, and south, just in terms of burial rites. So it's always difficult to um, engage in cultural anthropology, you know, where you see a body and you see what seems to have been bread and wine, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, um, now, and weapons. And it's highly reasonable, in my view, to believe that those were there for a believed uh, post-mortem existence. Yeah. However, you know, who knows? But I would say that there's a preponderance of evidence as well as, um, you know, along with the early artifacts and contemporary um, beliefs that are unsullied by, say, European or modern intervention, of where they're basically all dualists. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's amazing. Um yeah, so so there's and that that should kind of give us pause, probably. You know, in, in unless you have this view, Lewis C.S. Lewis, we're talking philosophy. We have to distinguish which Lewis we're talking about. Uh, C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery. Like, unless you think everyone else is completely stupid for all of human history, then this should the the preponderance of the evidence of of all of our ancestors thinking that we were souls or we had souls or we could ex- um, survive the death of our body should form some form. Like, it, it should be some form of evidence that we have to interact with instead of just going, well, they were dumb. They didn't even know about the printing press or something. You know, they didn't have Starbucks back then, so they don't know. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to talk. So, so I think that is some, some good evidence there, but um, I wanted, I was curious, what, what do you think are the, some of the best arguments for the existence of, uh, the mind, the immaterial mind, the soul. Yeah, I I guess I, I would go with four or five reasons. I'll, I'll say just briefly, mm-hmm. the, the idea of something being universally believed, of course, doesn't mean that you can go from that to that it's true. But I do think to use the C.S. Lewis line, it's, it's kind of would be an example of snobbery not to uh, give it weight. Yeah. In terms of your the spectrum of philosophical views that you investigate, mm-hmm. I frankly think that even um, the existence of demons and, and demons and angels is a philosophically worthy uh, yeah. of inquiry. Not necessarily of professional philosophers going to look at um, the paranormal evidence, that kind of thing. Sure. But consider well. Is there logical space for this? Could the you know, is this absolutely crazy or not? Um, my own reasons for adopting we use substance dualism is that 
It accounts for the um, continuity of persons over time, and it accounts for the fact that to know just you know the body, the anatomy, the brain, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, alone does not ipso facto give you knowledge of that which is mental, subjective, and conscious. Mm-hmm. So this is called the knowledge argument, and it goes, you know, it's much older than Frank Jackson. It goes yeah. to, um, I think you can find it actually in Plato, but certainly you can find it in um, Bertrand Russell, and I think you can find it in Goethe. Goethe oh. actually on Newton comments, you know, Newton's work on optics is great, but the one thing Newton left out is what things look like. You know, he got all sorts of stuff right about prisms and stuff, but he didn't really get, you know, Jackson would say what Mary sees when she sees the rest. But I want to just avoid the quagmire of how to interpret that thought experiment. But I would say the knowledge experiment holds strong, and it was formally introduced at the same time in the 70s by Thomas Nagel in his whimsical but cogent what it's like to be a bat. Amazing, and, yeah. Mm-hmm. And TLS Sprig came mm-hmm. up with it independently the same year, pu- published independently. They both came up with the same thing. I think I cite both of them in my Wiley Blackwell. Um, so the knowledge argument is, um, to me, very forceful. The fact that you, if one thing is another, if water is H2O, et cetera, et cetera, you know, to examine one is to examine the other, but we do not have that kind of correlation with respect to the subjective and the mental. Yeah. And, you know, people will go, oh, the opacity of the intentional. I mean, you can interact with a masked man and yet realize, later realize it's your father. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can interact with um, sea fibers firing and not realize it's pain. However, when you think, ah, this could be the very same thing as pain, well, ask yourself, well, do you see the pain? Do you see the affective conscious apprehension of the painfulness Hmm. visually? And I would say, I would say no. And I'd say this is even go all the way. And you're looking at somebody writhing in agony. And of course, you're seeing a correlation. Of course, you're seeing what from a common sense point of view would be this person is injured. But do you literally have the same conditions of um, observation and knowledge of the physical and mental? No. And I would say what you do have in our case, uh, that is of healthy human beings and so on, you have an integration of the mental and the physical. Yeah. But that's not an identity. Mm-hmm. It can come apart when we're ill, um, brain damage, but also actually when we're morally deplorable with each other. Mm-hmm. You can look at me and see me, but you actually don't see what I really think. And that's because there's a metaphysical dis- distinction there. Yeah, a lot of so a lot of people get all uh, bothered by that, and they go, "Well, you know, what about you know Wittgenstein's uh, private language argument and the beetle in the box?" Um, but 
I, I don't know. I want to point towards like, I think Hillary Putnam talked about super Spartans and super actors. And it's like, that's, that's true. You can, you just, as you said, you can uh, lie to people. You can be, and I don't know if super actors are, are possible or whatever, but the, I think the intuition there is still good that your uh, physical actions can give off a different impression than how you're really feeling inside. All of us know this just intuitively, right? Or even from experience. Yeah, I agree. I'm, I'll just add two comments. Is one is um, the public language argument is we can we can imagine the matrix with ease. We can imagine it even 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 more elaborate situations in which you've got all the conditions of public language and verification and so on, and yet none of it turns out to be true. Yeah, all of it's simulation, and if it wasn't. That wouldn't be possible. This is, uh, it's kind of a, a child of the argument from illusion, but it's, I, I think it's a highly effective here. And um, the notion of the beetle in the box is first note how grotesque that image is. <laughs> I don't mind beetles, uh, not just the reading group, uh, the reading group, <laughs> the band, but it's kind of this notion, you know, the beetles don't survive, you know, in a box, it's going to suffocate. There's something grotesque about the image. Huh. And it's kind of like the the use of terms that are meant to be manipulative. Yeah. Uh, like, oh, you're using folk psychology or to use another Wittgensteinian thing. Ah, I see you're a fly in a bottle that's trying to get out. Mm-hmm. Or, Oh, I see you've been bewitched by language recently. Language gone yeah. on a holiday. Now, these are very arresting things. And I I came of age when I was your age and um, when I was a late teenager and on into my early 20s in grad school, where I studied under Vicocinians. And one of them, the success of an argument, and this is really pejorative, I'm not going to name the persons. Okay, name, sure. But if you could just align yourself with a Wittgensteinian dictum, you know, you won. Yeah. But the whole thing was really weird. It's like, oh, I said, that's like asking what time is it on the sun? <laughs> and I'm going like, hmm, well, why is that an absurd question? And there's actually a debate on that. Mm-hmm. Somebody said it's, it's cocktail hour. Uh, another person said it's noon uh, but the thing is if you press these little things like if a lion told me what time it was I wouldn't understand it well press that a little bit Yeah. Um, play with it a little bit think of Narnia and think of um, Alice in Wonderland and the rabbit looking at its wand think of what was Wittgenstein trying to get at? And um, I think I think the public language argument captivated the field for a while. Yeah. I remember being in Oxford at a seminar and asking the professor, I said, what if you discovered that the language argument wasn't compelling? And he just got apoplectic. <laughs> it was like, well, what I'm, I'm, um, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> it was like, like, I don't know, is the atomic theory of matter 
completely false. You know, right. that's preposterous. And but the thing was, the confidence at Oxbridge, Oxford and Cambridge, at one point was so rock solid. If you go against the private language argument, you were toast. Yeah. And yet, a little while later, criticism by John Foster, Galen Strawson, people got a little less into behaviorism. Mm-hmm. People got less into Gilbert Ryle. Yeah. And um, John Searle came along, um, sadly, about his situation, but that block. Um, mm-hmm. Thomas Nagel, a lot of people, and people are going, like, hmm, yeah, there's something more than just social conventions. Yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, yeah. We got to keep, yeah, we got to keep going. We can't, Cyril, the whole thing's a mess, man. Holy cow. But I, I, intentionality came back through him um, and uh, was developed really, really strongly. And, and, I'm sure you you benefited from that work as well. So, um, we have we we have identity over time. We talked about, um, and then uh, what was the second one? We we had so much fun. I think I lost it. Well, I would say, well, I'm not exactly famous on this level, but I defend the modal argument, hmm. which is Swinburne has been defending it for a while. Yeah. yeah. Others, but I think it is a um, conceivable, and it's reasonable to believe it's metaphysically possible right. for you to exist without your body, and your body to exist without you. And I think it, it's it's evident, actually, in um, in death, that as animalists, people who I say I'm an animal, you know, that's the first thing we know. Right. And there's a, all sorts of interesting arguments about who gets to say what at the beginning. And there's an animal sitting here. Um, I'd say Charles is sitting here. And um, yes, he's a homo sapien, but let's think a little further. However, um, animalists who identify you as an animal, when you die, your chances are, unless it's instantaneous annihilation, your body's still there. Mm-hmm. So you, if you are your body, you're still there. Yeah. And that is so highly implausible experientially, conceptually, and the like. Um, when my mother died and the undertaker was on the phone with me and said, we have your mother here. And I said, we'll put her on. I'd like to talk with her. And my view is, no, you don't actually have my mother. You have her body. You have her corpse. Yeah. And um, it's it's a substantial change. So when I've been present with my mother, my father, others who've died, it's you you almost can't help but realize that the person is no longer there. However, animals have to believe that they are. Van and Wagen has said in in print. I worry about becoming uh, rotting flesh someday. Whoa. And on his view, I think that's actually reasonable fear. Because if this is it, suddenly it's just some rotting flesh. We could almost say, where's Peter? Mm, He's over there. Some animals would say, well, um, actually, 
okay, the animal body is you when you're alive, but it's it goes through a process mm-hmm. of being a person. So your body is being a person, and then it'll cease being a person, like you were a student, and now um, you're emeritus professor, whatever. Mm-hmm. So it's still Parker. Yeah. However, ask yourself, is it reasonable to believe that people are processes? Mm-hmm. And I don't think it is. That is, it's you who were a student and you who eventually will be um, a distinguished emeritus professor. Um, it's not that being an emeritus professor was doing these things. It's yeah. you, the agent. So I think that understanding yourself um, agentively or as an agent over time, realizing that you're the same person that you were when you were a child, even though your body has significantly changed, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, there's causal identity. I mean, roughly, you know, this causes this, causes that. Mm-hmm. But strictly speaking, you are the same person. Yeah. And and you understand yourself as a subject. So very famous people, like even Aristotle, who referred to God as thought thinking itself, right. is technically makes no sense. Now, of course, he's Aristotle, so we'll let him have three <laughs> pounds. Yeah. Um, no problem. Mm-hmm. But thoughts can't think. Yeah, right. So, oh, okay, okay. That's... There's so much here that's so good. I remembered, uh, so your first one was identity over time, then it was the knowledge argument, but we didn't go with Frank Jackson, so it didn't register. Um, we, we went deeper past Frank uh, Jackson. He's coming on the podcast to talk about the Mary stuff, so that'll be that'll be another fun one, and I can uh, maybe bring up some of your notes on, on how... Uh, He's dead. Doing. Frank? Frank Jackson? Yeah. Um, are, you, are you sure? Well, check it out. Um... I just had an email correspondence with him. I thought, unless was it like just recently? Um, well, it, it it's immaterial for us, for you and me right now. Yeah, okay. <laughs> he, I believe that he, yeah, he died a few years ago. But there could be another Jackson, um, and and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he's okay. still with us. I hope he's still with us. Yeah, me too, because he's supposed to come on the podcast in a couple of days. So let's, <laughs> let's see. Um, if he does and he's dead, this would be world history. This will be knockdown argument, case in point for substance dualism. Yeah, you, your podcast might be the most important podcast in the history. Certainly, I would say of the world. Yeah. It could be the most important. This is fantastic. Not not just yeah, because of that fact. On top of the fact that I have you on right now, I think it's already the most important because because of this conversation. But yeah, that would be quite a fact. <laughs> well, I'm tuning in. I love it. I'm I'm ready for it. Um, so so we have knowledge. We have uh, identity over time. Now this this modal argument. Um, 
which are all gold, man. I, I love these arguments. But so something that's uh, Swinburne, and, and you, you know, you don't have to defend uh, Swinburne's take or anything like that. But um, Doctor Swinburne says uh, he's going over the cogito in his in his one of his most recent books, um, "Are We Bodies or Souls?" And it's a really short. It's a short book, so you think maybe it'll be really easy to read, and it's not. And it's so so dense. It's amazing. It's really good. But he. He goes over the cogito uh, or cogito, sorry for everyone listening. Um, but he he says um, thinking is a property, and uh, properties are had by substances. There, you know, if you have this intuition that there's no properties without substances, then if there is thinking going on, because that's the objection, one of the objections to Descartes that all his his argument shows is that there's thinking going on. If it shows even that. But look, if there's thinking going on, then there's a thinker doing the thinking because thinking doesn't just happen without a thinker. Well, what do you what do you make of that line of thought? Um, I think it's deep. That mm-hmm. is, um, some of these um, opponents to the cogito or there you go cogito, however you want to pronounce. <laughs> okay, um, we actually often don't know exactly how ancient Latin and Greek were pronounced. I mean, right. like Cicero instead of Cicero, right? Yeah, and Berkeley, um, which is called um, Berkeley, you know, in California. We only know, go with Berkeley because his name rhymes with um, Berkeley and, oh. Smirkly. Yeah, something like that. It's funny how you... And no one will know ever how to pronounce my name. But if you think about it, uh, Russell said, you know, there is thinking or it is raining. You don't need um, a thing. And Max Shaler, Elizabeth Anscombe said, um, Max Shaler thought what you should say is that this thing is thinking. Yeah. Uh, and Anscombe said, um, yeah, we, we have no idea. It's more like a grammatical illusion, like the person saying I is thinking. But if you look at each of these, <coughs> they <coughs> seem absurd. Yeah. For example, it is, there is thinking, just Name any thinking without a thinker. Just <laughs> any example. I, I suppose you can think of it is raining, but to what extent is raining like thinking, like the thoughts, uh, it is raining because um, um, because I see it raining, or anything like that. To what extent is that akin to rain? And besides, with, with raining, you, you don't have rain without some substances, without some things like water droplets. That's what I would think. You know, take out the uh, substances, or if you're, you know, if you're Peter Van Wagen, whatever the, the fundamental BBs that make those up, um, that are, uh, you know, appeared to raindrop wise or, or, or something like that. Um, <laughs> whatever. If you take, take those out and then you don't really have raining anymore, you take all the things out. And I, I used to get really bothered by this because of Russell and Wittgenstein and, they're this thought that the only thing that exists are facts. You just have facts and facts and more facts. You have a red ball, yeah, but you have red and ball together in this fact. And so, or or you can substitute events in there. 
as well. And it really, really bothered me because I'm looking at my desk and I'm like, this isn't a thing. It's not made out of anything. It's just an event. And it really bothered me to think of ontology that way. But people have helped me a little bit, uh, philosophical therapy, and helped me see that you have to have things to have facts or events. Um, and maybe even facts and events are abstract things. And so you need more concrete things if you're going to have these abstract things. Yeah, there's a good book called um, Either Substance or Substances by um, Hoffman and Rosenberg. Okay. Very strong affirmation of the existence of things. Swinburne does as well in his book on um, free will. Mm. And, like it's a came out before this. Are we souls? Is or it mind? Was mind brains and free will or minds? I think so. Yeah, I think that that's good. And also, one can you scrutinize Max Schlenk and Anscombe and others. And if if I conversationally with you, you know, we're having this debate, and you say to me, Charles, wouldn't it be better if you just said that this thing is thinking? And my view is. That would be only in the case of absolute either comedy or absurdity. Hmm. Um, like this thing? Besides, let's take the word this. Like this is an indexical, like that here now. This means that which a speaker is drawing your attention to. Mm-hmm. Now, if you don't know you're a speaker or a hearer, you wouldn't know what this or that refers to. Mm -hmm. If I said to you, this thing is thinking, you'd have to know, one, uh, let's say if you said that sentence, that everybody around us understood what you're trying to draw attention to, and um, how would they do that unless they knew who and what they are right. as subjects who can recognize each other and things you draw attention to. Mm-hmm. It kind of brings out the primacy of the first person. Yeah, I was just going to say, yeah, it came right back to it. Where I like the word presupposed um, just because of where I came from. But it, it, stuff. yeah, yeah, right. So <laughs> it, it seems like the first person is presupposed even in conversation because i'm i'm speaking to you i'm recognizing myself as a speaker i'm i'm maybe by analogy or however else we want to solve the problem of other minds i'm using something to infer in a that that you have a mind like me and that you can interpret and understand the language that i'm using and that and that that's the first person and man it's so good i i love i love that thought because a lot of my time has been spent thinking, you know, how can we like save the first person from this third person attack? And I like guys like you because you, you switch it and you go, well, let's save the third person. The first person's so sure that stop thinking this way. Let's go out and save the third person because we know the first person's subjective. It's, it's, it's underneath, it's undergirding all of our experience. Yeah. One thing I'd add to that and I love your thinking um, on this, is that Lynn Baker does a great job on this and Mm -hmm. 
has a book. I think it's called Naturalism in the First Person. And I'm pretty sure she died two to three years ago. So you may. I've heard that one. I have heard that one. Yeah. Post. Wait, or or try to get her on and see what happens. Right. Right. <laughs> but um, I think what she did is she does a absolutely first rate job defending the first person. But I think she was hesitant to believe in. Um, that there actually is a person, i.e. a concrete individual self, who is a person. And my own view is you can't have a first-person point of view without having a person. Amen, yeah. And, uh, you know, she was very keen with her compositional theory of the self, and uh, she was a believing uh, Christian and practicing Episcopalian until she died. Mm -hmm. Um, she wanted to believe in uh, the afterlife, incorporeal God, and but she wanted to also be a materialist about things in this world. So she wanted to believe you, Parker, are that body. Yeah. However, it, it it might well be the case at physical death, you become, as it were, recomposed, perhaps immaterially or by some different. Um, material in some space not spatially related to this world, you know, just all these sure. different scenarios that people are speculating about. Yeah. Um, however, people like um, Dean Zimmerman, as well as myself, think that that kind of transition still calls you to recognize that there is a person, a concrete individual being, who could make that transition? Yeah, I love it. I, I'm I'm 100. I'm, I'm I'm having a hard time even coming up with like counterexamples because I, I I believe that, and I've I've studied from from I've learned from you and and guys like Zimmerman and others. Um, so I, I love it. So that's yeah, that's another thing to bolster uh, the substance dualist view. I I wonder. I've been I've been wanting to ask you about like modes uh, and and such. Um, you know, per, you you argue persons aren't modes or you know subjects aren't modes. Such um, are you familiar with the with the bodily soul view? It's it's maybe like some different language, but it's basically like. Um, well, let me ask you first. I guess are you, are you familiar with that language that some substance dualists are using? Let's say no. Okay, sure. Yeah, because yeah, we have to define everything, anyways. Um, well, it's it's basically like there's not two substances going on, but um, oh. right. So like the the soul is the substance, and the body is um, it's it's a mode of the soul. So there's the soul, there's properties, and there's like an exemplific- exemplification relation, and that's what your body is. And and when the soul, the substance leaves. Then uh, that's not really a body anymore. It's a corpse, right? So it's, um, but but these kind of folks, um, some have called them like Thomistic uh, dualists or something like that. Um, they would say, yeah, a, a body is necessarily ensouled, and so when the soul leaves the body, it's like an inseparable part or something, and and now you have a corpse, um, and so you don't really have two substances, even though we can still go by that name because that's what we received. Um, how do you have a, a set view on substance dualism that? You could interact with that view and say whether you affirm it or deny it. I'm pretty 
philosophically relaxed at this yeah. point. Sure. Um, I am um, 69 years old. Uh, and You don't uh, look a, a day over 68, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my dad's old, old lines. I had to use it. I like your dad. <laughs> um, and I'm, I continue to be very active. I'm giving a talk in Brazil in the, later this month. And yeah. And so on, and I'm still, I'm writing like crazy. But I'm also not um, cruising for bruising, shall we say. (laughs) I'm up for really, when I leave this earth, uh, I'd actually choose my um, opponents, those that are much more profoundly reductive or utterly dismissive. Yeah. So, I happen to not be a Thomist hylomorphic guy, yeah, because I um, I don't um, embrace the four matter distinction. Now that's I, I I mean I've considered it for dozens of years. However, I don't rule it out. Sure, it could be tomorrow. I'm persuaded of that, and I do like this idea that. The soul is fundamentally real, and then the note to treat embodiment as a a form of exemplification. It it exemplifies these properties and so on, and then perhaps sheds them. Mm -hmm. All that sounds good. I suppose I would share with the Thomas and maybe these other brother and sister philosophers you're alluding to um, what I call integrative. Oh, great. I was just going to ask you about that. So you anticipated it. Fantastic. Partly because, you know, I was born in 52 and I I went through all the um, Gilbert Ryle, Ghost in the Machine stuff. Uh, Anthony Flew used to say, oh, you know, dualists think you never see people, you just see their container. Uh, Right. So I go, okay. Or you don't kiss your wife, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Maver- um, what's his name? Um, Tyler claims that. And my view on all this is, yeah, actually, you might not kiss your wife. Hmm. It may be that she actually is not Sheila, but you know Gertrude, and she has you know other plans, and you're not. Mm-hmm. Kissing her, and I would say people can be either brain damaged or just so you you really literally only see their body as a container. And actually, Bertrand Russell himself in the um, in the book that uh, the biography dedicated to him by Max, uh, the most recent biography of his, mm-hmm. which draws on. Russell himself thought of himself in the world as a ghost. Hmm. He actually said, you know, he was horribly confused sexually, you know, highly active here, you know, committing adultery, blah, blah. That doesn't matter. It doesn't make his views false or anything like that. Right. But, but he himself in the world felt at one point like a ghost in the machine. Huh. So what I would say with all these People who go, oh, you know, do a, I say, yeah, you know, 
it could turn out that way. However, ideally, you know, we're called to be integrated beings. Yeah. I, would, I would say, you know, in the image of God. And the Amen. Yeah. Well, so I always, I always try to press my dualist friends uh, on this and professors because I'm, I don't know, maybe I, maybe I want to find a, a place too, too bad, and I want to defend a, a particular position. But all, most of my, most of my dualist friends just go, "Hey, look, one of them is right." Uh, one of them has to be right, and I'm cool with whatever. So I, it's funny that that you have the same uh, the same personality there. Maybe I need to loosen up a little bit and say, "Hey, look, dualism is dualism, and I'm cool with it." Yeah. Well, uh, I'd say um, there's a okay. Herbert Feigl, major materialist, um, hmm. 50s and 60s. He once said, "You know." One sign of intellectual maturity is living with, you know, confusions and riddles and contradictions. So you just don't know how to figure out. Now, my view on his case was, well, that was very convenient. And <laughs> he was writing at a time when very early people like J.J.C. Smart was saying, like, red can turn out to be just this. And then people pressed him on it and said, well, on your view, none of us actually see red. Yeah. And that actually turned out to be correct. And then what turned out to be preposterous. And that's why you needed more sophisticated identity theories that could somehow not be just completely false. Right. So, so my view is that um, in philosophy, and I, I guess I'll – Maybe I'll address Christians. Is is this largely Christian, or is this anybody and everybody? It, there's a lot of of uh, anybody and everybody, but I think it's primarily Christian uh, professors and Christian masters and PhD students who are into philosophy and theology. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's my audience. Yeah. Okay. Well, I would say that when you're choose, I don't mean to be doing an advice to Christian philosophers, but oh, do it. Bring it. Bring it in. Yeah. I will. Is it part of you know what you focus in on depends on the resources you have, how old you are, how long you think you've got left, <laughs> and I'd say um, for for me the most crucial point is arguing for the integrity of consciousness and subjective experience. Yeah. So, and I'm actually a Platonist. Now, awesome. cool. Me too. I could, I could spend time thinking of God and abstract objects, but I actually already have a conviction on it. I could change, in which case, I don't have a problem with that. But I'm, I, you know, turning seventy this year, and thinking I have fifteen more years of really actively writing and thinking, is I need to choose where I'm going to. So if I'm in my twenties, hey. Sky's the limit. Okay. Sky sailing. Don't tie yourself down to almost, you know, just think imaginatively. But even so, you, you know, given your career, you can't just write on everything. You're gonna, right. have, you're gonna have to establish yourself in as either a compatibilist or a libertarian or some fourth version that hasn't been conceived of yet. Yeah. But there are certain views like open theism versus not 
I'm sort of an open theist, but actually in print, I've defended the traditional timelessness of God. And mm. so it's clearly, I don't have a dog in the, in the fight or, or race or something. Yeah. My, I guess my advice would be, um, especially as you get older, is figure out what, what do you think is most enduringly important that you might be able to leave when you die. <laughs> yeah. And um yeah. That's fantastic. That's 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 super great. Um there, one more thing. being open because it might be I mean, I know people, philosophers of religion who have spent their lives um or the last part of their lives dealing with colonialism in Africa. And there's bound to be a certain percentage of Christian philosophers with the war in Ukraine that are gonna just focus in on war crimes, international tribunals. Yeah. Does Christian philosophy have any special insights here or or not? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. That's really good. I, I, I have to ask you just a bit about intentionality before I let you go here because um you know that's 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 why you went to study with Chisholm. Um is in well, is it a good argument for for substance dualism for the mind? Like, what, how does intentionality? Um, how do we get to the mind from intentionality? Oh, I was um, I was actually using intentionality as one among the many modes hmm. we as subjects engage in. So we yeah. engage in thinking, doubting. Um, loving, hating. We also experience um, red, blue, pain. We have a whole range of some of some aesthetic experiences, yeah. beauty and ugliness and so on. So I was proposing that what's evident to us is I think that we can observe ourselves. You mentioned um, the person writing on the primacy of mental, and I think somebody was maybe using um, the unity of apperception, which is a Kantian term. But the, yeah, uh, I love that. I love that term, by the way. I know Kant's another one, but but yeah, unity of of apperception. Uh, Brandon Rickabout, unity of phenomenal consciousness. Yeah, yeah. On that view, usually, maybe not the Hamlet in particular. Usually, it's accompanied with the idea that you don't ex- actually experience yourself. You just have to posit that there's a self always in order to account for the unity of consciousness. Oh, because Kant says it's transcendental, so it can't be known, but it's known like indirectly or something. Exactly. Whereas I take the view that you can first and foremost experience and observe yourself. Yeah, that's that's Brandon's view uh, as well. Yeah. yeah. And I think you do every time when I experience pain. It's not like I just experience pain. I experience that I am in a painful state. Yeah, right. It's like a dual intentional state. Um, I think, I don't know how many people use that phrase or not, but it's like you have, you're seeing something, but it's looping back on yourself and you, you know that you're experiencing pain or something. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Very articulately put. Um, Yeah. So I don't go from, so some people do go from intentionality to dualism on the basis that the the physical is ipso facto non-intentional. Yeah. Now, if that's the way it's set up, you got it. You're home. Okay. You have property dualism, but and and part of the problem is we don't really have a clear conception of that which is mind independently physical. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, that's back best to your back to your Galileo's mistake. Yeah. And um, so, but I would say when when you look at the full repertoire of subjectivity, and you realize that the scientific image, the, um, the whole world of science, etc., all of that depends on there being subjects, you, me, making observations, calculations, theories, coming up with conflicts and arguments. And I'd say that indicates that mental causation has to be indubitably mm. um, reliable and and real. Uh, now, can that be accounted for if it is solely physical? And now you can just expand the word physical like liberal naturalists do and say, yes, that's what we're doing. Mm. But you are expanding the word physical because, you know, if you look in the brain, the neurosystem, the cerebellum and everything else, you're not literally seeing thinking. Right. You know, people say, oh, water is H2O, photosynthesis is this. But when you look at water, you see the h You look at photosynthesis, you see the building was. Now, you look at the brain. Do you actually literally observe the thinking, feeling, and experiencing? Hmm. And I say, no. And I, it seems to me you can say, well, let's do a functional equivalent. Okay, fine. No problem. In yeah. fact, that's what I think most people are um, – actually dualists, even neuroscientists, but they adopt a kind of functional identity. Huh. So they treat, like, oh. So you say functionalism, like dualism leads, uh, follows from forms of functionalism? Well, I think that you, you get to functionalism in the following way. You believe that your patient is in pain uh, and you are, you've identified the pain centers and you're seeking to, I don't know, anesthetize the patient or whatever. Yeah. And so what you're doing is you're focusing on this area and these nerve endings. And so you're probably, if you're a neurologist, you're not engaged in Leibniz and the mill and involved in metaphysics. You're probably, you're just trying to stop the subject from consciously experiencing pain. Yeah. And so you're probably functionally identifying the subject's feelings with those um, neurons firing and so on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. So good. I love this has been, this has been so awesome. We we've gone all over the map here, which has been fantastic. Uh, Dr. Tolliver, thanks so much for, for being willing to go down the rabbit holes with me. This has been really fun. If this is a rabbit hole, I, I want to be in the Warren. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, well, uh, Dr. Tolliver, I want to re- respect your time here, but um I would love to do this again with you. Uh, we, we've got more to cover. There's, there's lots of uh, fun stuff that we could talk about. But um, for now, thank you for, for all you've done. Thank you for your hard work. And uh, there's a lot of us coming up right now who are seriously benefiting from your work. And because you held down the fort when uh, the behaviorists were in there and, and the Wittgensteinians were trying to take over, because you didn't bend the knee to Wittgenstein, a lot of us still get to be dualists. So seriously, thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. You're a good man. Thank you so much. And we'll be in touch. Definitely. All right, folks, that's going to have to do it for now. This has been Parker's Pensies, and as always, all glory to God.